to the High Praises Church podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. Hey, so a couple of months ago, we had a big storm come through in Anderson and the whole upstate area, and it was like a big one. Like, they were really pumping it up, making this thing out to be something big, like something just crazy. And I don't know when you hear big storms, what you think, maybe you think, oh, there's going to be a lot of limbs, we're going to have a lot of yard work, maybe you're excited, I don't know. But when I hear a big storm come through, I immediately think my power is going out. Like, I love my neighborhood, love my house, but no one told me that at the slightest rain, my power would go out. It's an old neighborhood, and that's what it does. And so it's happened time and time again. And so this storm is coming on a Wednesday. It's supposed to come on an evening, and I'm just thinking, it is going out. There's no need to wait on it. There's no need to see. There's no need to pay attention Our power's going out, so we might as well pack up and go to my parents' house and just deal with it. And now, it wouldn't be that bad if it was just on a casual Saturday, but it was a little rough. One, we had just bought groceries. I mean, just bought groceries. And so we had to pack all of that up to take it to the refrigerator at the church or my parents' house or whatever and do something with it. But but not only that, it was a Wednesday, and we had Thrive at 7. So now I'm in this stressed-out mode because I'm thinking our power will go out. We're packing everything up. We're running to my parents' house. We're scarfing down dinner, going to the church, going back. It was a whole thing. Anyways, we wake up the next morning, and we're checking Duke Power to, to see how long it will be before our power comes back on. And would you know it, our power did not cut off one single time. Not the whole time. And now my wife made me promise I would include this detail. As I was negative Nancy and said, it's going to go out, the whole time she was going, I rebuke that right now, it will not go out. She wanted me to include that she was right and I was wrong, which is the truth. Oh my gosh, it was just so stressful. There was so much going on because I was impatient. I did not want to wait Like, oh, how I wish I had that one back and I could have just lived my life, waited till, I don't know, 11, see if everything's good, and then we would have been all right. But no, I got impatient. I thought I knew what was supposed to happen, and I went ahead and made a snap decision, and, well, it just became a really, really stressful evening that we honestly could have avoided. But impatience honestly gets the best of us. And patience isn't really a thing we love. It's not a part of us that we love, but we all deal with it. You know, it's one thing for impatience to impact our everyday lives and in little ways like that, that maybe it's just stressful or a, or a little annoying. But where problems begin to rise up is when our impatience carries over into our relationship with God. Specifically, when we start getting impatient with God because we don't think he's done something that he should have done by now. Because the problem with impatience is it says, God, where are you? You should have shown up on my timeline. But if you allow it to fester, then the impatience turns to a lack of faith. And it says, God, if you haven't done it by now, I don't believe you ever will. And then as you begin to dwell on the fact that you believe that God is unfaithful, Maybe you even begin to look back to your life before God. Say, maybe I'll just go back to that. It wasn't perfect, but it was easier. Because God isn't there to comfort us or provide for us or to be faithful to us. We think we'll just take back control of our own life. 
And the whole time, we are missing God's faithfulness that is right in front of our eyes. And so my question to you today is this, church. Are you impatient with God? And if you are, we have to answer this question. Is he faithful? And so that's why today we are looking at the book of Numbers chapter 21. The book of Numbers chapter 21. So if you would, everybody in the room just stand and honor of God's word. I know we've had you standing up and sitting down. This should be the last time before altar. Numbers chapter 21 beginning in verse 4 says this. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Thank you so much. You can be seated. So here's what's going on. God has set his people free from slavery to the nation of Egypt. And he's done it in miraculous fashion. Part of the Red Sea led all of these people out of Egypt. And he's promised them a particular land, literally called the promised land. And this land is a place of peace and of comfort and of rest from all of their enemies. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's got all kinds of things for them. It's a, it's a final place where they can just breathe and be with their God and everything is going to be all right. But in between Egypt and the promised land is a wilderness. And wilderness is not good. It's not fun. It's literally wild. It's a wilderness. And so out in the wilderness, there's not really food that you can get easily. There's not water that you can get easily. Out in the wilderness, you're having to walk all day to try and get to your destination. It's hot out in the wilderness. You, you, you don't have your own home. You're in tents. You're, you're, you're doing all of these things. And, and never mind that on the way, they're encountering these, encountering these random tribes and nations that are coming against them, trying to kill them. Like the wilderness is an exhausting place on the way to the promised land. And despite everything God had done for them in the past, eventually Israel is in the wilderness. Things are, are kind of getting rough for them, and they start complaining with God. In fact, they get impatient with God. We're stuck out here in the wilderness. God, I thought you promised us the promised land. What is going on? And they start getting impatient because the wilderness is difficult. The scripture says that they came against Moses and against God and began accusing them. They said, Lord, you didn't bring us out here to lead us to the promised land. You brought us out here to die. There's no bread. There's no water. The food you have given us, we hate it. They start getting impatient with God. God, why have you not brought us to our final destination yet? 
But the problem is, is that this impatience, that they weren't in the promised land yet, turned into faithlessness. And that's why they told God, you didn't bring us out here to bring us to the promised land. You brought us out here to die. God, we know what you've promised us. We know what you said you would do. We just don't believe you. You're not going to do it. You've brought us out here to die. But then it gets worse. They begin to reflect back on Egypt. Now you might say, hold up, Evan, that wasn't in the text. You're right, the text only says, Lord, why did you bring us up out of Egypt just for us to die? It doesn't say that they reflect on Egypt. But we can kind of infer that they're thinking about Egypt. And the reason is, is that this is not Israel's first rodeo. They have been here before. One time in the book of Exodus, and then one time in Numbers chapter 14. And you know what they said? Lord, why did you bring us out here to die? At least in Egypt, we had food. At least in Egypt, we had meat to eat. At least in Egypt, we had fruits and vegetables. At least in Egypt, we had homes. So though the text doesn't say it, I think we can safely kind of guess that that's what's going on in their brains. Lord, why did you take us out of Egypt where there's all kinds of stuff just to kill us in the wilderness? I think I'd rather be a slave to an evil tyrant doing whatever he says and be comfortable than be stuck out here in the wilderness trusting you. Oh, how scary of a place that is. And yet, all the while, Israel is completely and totally ignoring God's faithfulness in the past. And they're despising God's faithfulness in the present. Lord, you brought us out here to die. Never mind, God literally parted the Red Sea. The Red Sea. So they could go through. You brought us out here to die. Never mind God killed Pharaoh's army. You brought us out here to die. Ne never mind that as Moses held the staff up, Joshua's army began winning. Not because Joshua was great, but because God was great. You brought us out here to die. Never mind he killed Og, king of Bashan or whatever. You brought us out here to die. Never mind literally the story before this, God defeated a Canaanite king. I mean, literally, Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, God defeated a king for them. But you brought us out here to die. But it's not only that. We have no bread or water. Never mind God had been raining bread down from the sky the entire time. Well, we have no water out here. Well, never mind on two different occasions. God made water flow out of a rock enough to feed millions of people. And the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, this is so fun, insinuates that one of the rocks literally followed them around for a period so they could keep drinking. Poof, that blows my mind. Love it. They forgot God's past faithfulness, and this is where it gets scary. They despised his present faithfulness. Because, see, they knew about the manna. That's what it was called, bread raining down from heaven. They just didn't like it. They would rather have a buffet in Egypt than God's manna in the wilderness. And so they said, Lord, we despise this wretched food. God, you haven't given us any food. Yes, I have, but we don't like it. I mean, they're little babies is what they are. 
And though God had provided for them in the present, they just didn't like the way that he did it. And so my question to you today is much like Israel trapped out there in the wilderness. Have you become impatient with God? If we want to bring this into the Christian life, Egypt, slavery to Pharaoh represents our slavery to sin and to the evil tyrant Satan. That you and I were trapped in sin before God came and saved us. Now the promised land represents Christ coming back for us. The new heavens and the new earth. Read Revelation. There will be a new Jerusalem, right? Where there was an earthly Jerusalem in the promised land. A place of peace and rest from our enemies and perfection and dwelling in the presence of God. It's the end goal. Yet in between there is the wilderness. That's where you and I are right now. The journey out of sin into perfection with our Lord Jesus. And so I ask you this, in the middle of the wilderness of your life, of your spiritual life, in the middle of the wilderness where it's difficult, where it's hard to get through, where there's a lot of stresses, have you become impatient with God that the wilderness is not the promised land? God, I thought you promised me perfect peace. But why do I still deal with anxiety and stress and worry? I thought you'd show up by now. God, I thought you promised me, raise up a child in the way you should go and he will not depart from you. But my kids don't serve Jesus. Where are you? God, I thought you promised me perfect freedom from sin. But why did I go back to porn? Why am I still angry and kind of Flip out on people. Lord, I thought I would be better than this by now. Where are you? Are you impatient with God? But have you moved from impatience and God forbid to a lack of faith? I'm not talking about you're an atheist. I'm not talking about you're not a Christian. I'm not talking about you've turned your back on God. But are there little areas and points of interest in your life in which you've said, God, I don't trust you because you didn't show up on my timetable? Well, I guess I'll take the anxiety in my own hands now because you don't know what you're doing. I guess I'll take the sin in my own hands now because you don't know what you're doing. I guess I'll take my marriage, my family, whatever it is, into my own hands now because you're obviously not going to show up. And we accuse God of being unfaithful to us, to his bride. But then this is where it gets scary, gets worse. Have you looked fondly back on Egypt? Have you longed to go back to Egypt because while it's not perfect, at least it's easy? At least it's comfortable. At least there's a buffet there for me, though I'm enslaved to an evil tyrant named Satan. Or at least before Christ, my Friday nights at the bar let me kind of clock out for a moment. Maybe I'll just go back to that. Well, sin's not perfect, but at least... Porn gives me some of that pleasure, something there while my marriage isn't working. Maybe I'll go back to that just to get me through. Well, sin isn't perfect, but at least it's comfortable. At least I kind of found my way. At least I know what I'm doing. So maybe I'll just go back to that because it's easy. 
Have you made your way back to Egypt? And if you have, would you listen to me? Egypt may sound good now, but it isn't. Because Satan always overpromises and underdelivers. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing attractive to being a slave, a second-class citizen to a tyrant named Satan unless you've completely blacked out on God's faithfulness in the past and in the present. That's the only, only way. Kind of think about it like this. Uh, a couple of years ago, me and my friends, were we were hanging out, and, and I guess we had just eaten dinner, and for some reason, we wanted a milkshake. Like, we were all really wanting a milkshake, so we're kind of throwing out ideas of all these places, and then all of a sudden, in my head, popped this restaurant me and my parents used to go to all the time as a kid. Don't ask me what it is. I won't tell you, but I was just thinking about it. I was like, man, this place is awesome. Like, I don't know if you've done that. You've kind of gone down memory lane, and you've got so many good memories. We would always go through the drive through It was kind of a treat. It was something special. I remember going after a church basketball game one time and all of these things, and I just remember them having the very best peanut butter milkshakes with extra peanut butter. And so now I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, look, guys, we have got to go to this place. It is amazing. And you can tell they're kind of like, I don't really know about that place. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I'm pushing all the chips in. Like, this place is awesome. It is the goat. We have got to go. And so they finally say, all right, whatever. We'll just go to this place. So I'm getting hyped. I'm pumped up. I'm in the drive-thru. We're ready to go. I order. I want a peanut butter milkshake with extra peanut butter. And I am like gearing up, ready to go. And finally, I get my milkshake. And it was the worst peanut butter milkshake I've ever had in my life. It was awful. It was honestly like they opened up like a jar of peanut butter, poured a little bit of milk in there and said, here you go, $5, please. I mean, you couldn't suck the thing through a straw. It wasn't even a milkshake. I had to use a spoon the whole time and it was awful. I got enough protein for like two weeks. Like it was not very good. And you could tell, like, my friends were like, yeah, this place really isn't amazing. We tried to tell you, like, I don't know what you're thinking. And I was so pumped up to go there. But once I finally went back, I was disappointed because it wasn't as good as I remembered. And can I tell you something? That if Satan is tempting you and drawing you to go back to Egypt because it sounds good, he's certainly lying to you. Because though you may have some fond memories of what sin can do for you, when you get there, it's never as good as it seems. And the only way Egypt looks attractive is if you've completely missed the faithfulness of God. But listen to me, God is faithful. And if he, go ahead, praise Jesus. Come on, lift him up. He is faithful. If he was with Israel in a cloud by day to protect him from the heat and, and in a pillar of fire by night, if he rained bread down from the sky and, and had water go through a rock, if he fought battles for them, think about what he's done for you. Don't let your impatience allow you to be so quick to forget just how faithful God is. I want you to take a personal moment and walk down memory lane, not to Egypt, but to God. Man, you may be struggling right now, but think about the time that God comforted you in your moment of need where you didn't know what you were going to do, but that perfect peace that surpasses all understanding showed up. 
Think about that moment you didn't have anybody in your life, but God sent a godly husband or wife or friends or church who was there to pick you up every time that you fell down. Think about those times where you were at your worst and yet God transformed you and changed you from the inside out. Think about the, the times when you didn't know where your next paycheck was going to come from, how you were going to get groceries, and yet God showed up right on time. If you are a Christian, God has been faithful. You only have to remember. And if we can think in general terms, don't you dare forget what we just celebrated, that 2,000 years ago, God was so loving and faithful to you that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, shed his blood, and rise again three days later for you. Don't you tell me God's not faithful. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to you. But the other problem Israel had wasn't just that they forgot God's faithfulness in the past. They despised it in the present. And is it possible that you're despising God's means and faithfulness in the present? They didn't like the manna. They wanted something tastier and easier. They wanted a buffet. And is it possible that God's provided for you just don't like the way he's done it? Well, pastor, I'm anxious and I'm stressed and I don't know what to do. Well, God's raised up professional Christian counselors to be a gift to the body. He's gifted you pastor after pastor at this church. We've got several life group leaders who love you and good Christian men and women in this church that would carry you through your struggle. Well, I don't want to do that. I just want to wake up and be better. I don't want to be vulnerable. I just want to do my thing, and I want God to fix it. I don't want to go through the process. I want it to look like that. And it's not that God hasn't provided. You've just despised his provision. Well, Evan, I'm stuck in sin, but I want to I get out. I want to be obedient. I want to do the right thing. I want to serve God, but I'm addicted to this thing or I'm struggling in this thing. Okay. Well, God's given you pastors here to give you biblical wisdom. He's given you sound preaching every Sunday. He's given you his refreshing presence in worship. He's given you leaders and elders and deacons in this church to guide you. Maybe he's given you a spouse or Christian friends that you can confide in and have accountability. Well, I don't want to do that. I just want to be better. And is it possible that you would rather go back to Egypt than go through the process of getting to the promised land? I understand manna may not taste as good as a buffet, but it sure is better for you. And if you are despising God's means of providing for you and delivering you, I beg you today, submit to his main means. It may not be as flashy, may not be as easy, may not be as tasty, but it works. Take what God has given to you and trust that he is faithful. But then we have another problem. Because the truth is this, if you have denied God, or if you have said, God, I don't trust you, or if you've gone back to Egypt and gone back into sin, that is sin. And sin has a price. Sin has a punishment. Sin has consequences. And Israel found this out real, real quick. That's why in verse 6 it says, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. 
Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people. And this is what God says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had been in anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Israel is in sin. They said, God, we don't trust you. We want to do our own thing. And sin brings judgment. And so God judges them by sending snakes into the camp. I don't know about you, but I'll be calling on Samuel L. Jackson or somebody to come take care of that. I hate snakes. Snakes come right into the camp and they start biting people. They're fiery snakes. They're poisonous snakes. They're killing people. And so the people come and repent. They say, Moses, we need forgiveness. So Moses goes to God and God says this, which is kind of odd if you think about it. He says, all right, here's how I'm going to forgive you. You're going to actually take and make a snake, a bronze snake. You're going to put it up on a pole, and you're going to lift it up. And if you're bitten, as long as you look at that snake on the pole, you will be healed, and you will have life. You'll be delivered. Now, it seems like kind of odd to us, but why don't we just go ahead and break it down like, to see what's happening here. It's interesting that God says the means of forgiveness, the means of healing, is to look at an image of your own judgment, to look at an image of your own destruction. To look at an image of your own death, looking at the serpent on the pole was an image of what they deserved, their judgment. But it's not just that. It was also a picture of their sin. Because there is a sneaky, evil serpent in Genesis chapter 3 that plunged humanity into sin through Adam and Eve. It's not that it was just a picture of their judgment. It was a picture of their sin because they were acting just like Satan. And so as they have the snake up on the pole, they see their judgment and their sin up there. And when they look at it, they're healed, they're forgiven. And now you may ask, all right, what in this world does that have to do with us? That seems super odd. Are you saying we're going to make a snake in here? Like, I didn't think we were those kind of Pentecostals. Like, what's going on? Like, what are we going to do? Well, thankfully, the New Testament actually explains what this very passage has to do for us. I want you to look at John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. It says this. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus after Nicodemus asked him, how do I enter the kingdom of God or how do I get saved? Jesus says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then here it is, the most famous verse of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus tells us this. The reason this story is here is because it correlates to me. That just as the snake was lifted up and they looked at the snake and were healed, I have to be lifted up. Not just on a pole, but on a cross. And if you would look at me and believe in me, you will have eternal life. Now, before we go on, can I teach you how to read your Bible better? Would that be okay? I don't know if we got some early morning Bible readers or if if we got some, some scholars and some theologians, but you might want to write down this word. 
What we're looking at here is what's called a biblical type. A biblical type. And here's what a type is. A type is a person, an event, a place, or a thing in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the New Testament. Even that word typos, typos, which comes from the Greek, has to do with like beating an image into a coin. So think about like a penny. It's got Abraham Lincoln on it. The penny is just an image of Abraham Lincoln, right? It's not Abraham Lincoln. It's a penny, but it's a picture of him. You can't see all the details and you can't see everything there, but you can recognize it's Abraham Lincoln. But there's a difference between the image of Abraham Lincoln and the reality of Abraham Lincoln standing here in the flesh and the blood. In the same way in the Bible, there are images, there are pictures, almost like a silhouette, like an outlining in the Old Testament that Jesus brings the truth or the real thing or the reality of in the New Testament. Is everybody following me? Right? It's like a little outline. Think about, think about it like this. You know when you make cookies with your kids and they want like a dinosaur shape? You pull out the pan and it's just a little outline, but there's nothing there. But after you pour it in and you fill it or you fulfill it, right, you have the real thing. It's a little vague outline over here, but the real thing over here. And this is all throughout your Bible. The Old Testament is filled with little pictures, little shadows, little drawings in which Jesus comes and brings the real thing. And so what Jesus is describing to us here is a biblical type. That just as the snake was risen in the wilderness, lifted up in the wilderness, he would be lifted up so that we could have life. The snake brought physical life. Jesus brings eternal life. And how does this work? Remember, the snake was a picture of their judgment and a picture of their sin. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say this, that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. For cursed is him who hangs on a tree. You see, Jesus was a picture of the curse you deserved. That as you look on the cross, you see where you should be. As you look at the curse, you see what you should be under. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul can say this, He who knew no sin became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. That is, Christ was hanging on the cross. It was a picture of the judgment you deserved. It was the picture of the sin that you have. It was a picture of the sinner that you are. Christ was declared guilty and swapped out for the criminal Barabbas, even though he had never sinned. Christ took on all your sin and all your wrongdoing and your curse and your death and your judgment so that you wouldn't have to. And as Christ is lifted up on the cross, all you got to do is look at him and believe he did that for me. That should be me, but he took my death. That should be me, but he took my curse. That should be me, but he embodied my sin so that I could have his righteousness, the righteousness of the true and living God. And the message of the cross, the message of the snake in the wilderness is that Christ became all that we are so that we might become what he is, holy and righteous and blameless in his sight. 
And he doesn't say that if you've turned your back on him, that if you've been faithless to him, that if you've accused him and pointed the finger at him, that there is no forgiveness for you. But he says, just model your life after the Israelites. Repent of your sins. Go to Jesus Christ and say, I need forgiveness and trust in the cross. The Son of Man lifted up, becoming a curse for you. It's literally as simple as this. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do enough works. You don't have to become a good person. You just look at this and believe it was for you and you are saved. You may have abandoned Jesus for the last 10 years, but this cross is still enough. You may have turned your back on him for your whole life, but this cross is still enough. You may have never trusted in Jesus, but this cross is still enough because Jesus embodied your judgment and your sin and your curse and your death so that you could have life in his name. Just look at the cross. That's the message of the gospel. So would everybody in the room stand today? Maybe I've been speaking right to you. Maybe you've grown impatient with God. Maybe you've become faithless and you said, God, I don't trust you. Maybe you've gone back to sin or despised his faithfulness. But I want you to know this, God is faithful. And if you would just come back to him today, Maybe you never depart. Maybe you just got an area of sin in your life. Repent of your sin today. Surrender that sin to him today. Not doing it, wondering, not kind of, not on the fence about it, but with full confidence knowing this, that God is faithful in the past, right here in the present, and he always will be in the future. God never changes. But I want you to know this. And if you fall into that sin, maybe you've never even known Jesus. There's a cross for you. Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up so that you might have forgiveness, so that you might have life and life eternal, so that you could be brought back into his family. He took all that you deserve so that you could be made like him. You can come back to him today. Man, I don't know if you've got a song ready, but would you get a song ready, even if it's the, whatever it is. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to open up these altars, and I'm going to trust you to social distance. I'm going to trust you to be safe, whatever. But if you want to come down to the altar for any reason, maybe none of this applied to you. You just need help from God. Maybe you need to surrender something to God and have faith in Him. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and get right with Him. This is where you meet with God. And if none of that applies to you, if not one person comes down as we sing this song in light of the cross, in light of the Son of Man lifted up, would you just worship Him for just a few moments? Whatever you need, God is here for you. Let's encounter Him, meet with Him, and worship Him in these few moments. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 o'clock and 1045. For more information, please visit us at highpraises.org.